For those of you that are maybe visiting today and uh, haven't been here through the course of things, uh, our church is, uh, has grown through the point where God has just given us so many opportunities of ministry and uh, many of the people sitting around you today have been here now seven or eight years and uh, have really uh, applied the principles of the Word of God. And, and uh, you know, we decided because of all the opportunities of ministry that God has given us as a church that uh, the book that we needed to go through and really understand uh, was the book of 2 Corinthians. And for those of you who may not be familiar with this book, it's uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the co church at Corinth had a lot of issues. In fact, we studied that book uh, before we studied this one to kind of lay down a context of where we were going and what we needed to see and understand. Church at Corinth was a very unspiritual church. It had a lot of spiritual babies in it. And spiritual babies that don't have a lot of fundamental doctrine in their life and operate on biblical principles, they always get into trouble. And uh, we saw that uh, how Paul in each chapter really deals with them issue by issue, sometimes multiple issues. I mean, they're so uh, carnal and unspiritual that they're even arguing about uh, who won who to Christ and who baptized who. The fact that that some person of notoriety won this person to Christ and just a common ordinary person that nobody really knows won this other person to Christ and they're actually tagging some kind of spiritual significance. I guess that you're more saved or better saved or uh, because somebody of great notoriety won you to Christ and somebody that's a nobody. And Paul has to deal with all of that. And uh, it was a very hard letter that he wrote them. And uh, many of them accepted his rebuke uh, but he had started that church, and it was very dear to him. And so because they wanted to do what's right, uh, he, uh, he wrote them the book of 2 Corinthians. And by doing that, the book of 2 Corinthians really sets the standard for us for the handbook of ministry. Where 1 Corinthians tells you what not to do, 2 Corinthians tells us chapter by chapter what we need to do. And that book is broken down by, by chapters, and each chapter... Uh, each chapter is a different aspect of the ministry defined, and many times, as you see today, we're only in chapter 1, and this should probably close out chapter 1 today, but my, we've looked at many, many different concepts. Where our church is at right now, and our church needs to learn the aspect of ministry, and we'll talk about that today, and I think that we'll see another great uh, lesson on ministry uh, and how to begin to apply it to what God has given us here and I told you when we started this, the great object lessons that we have in front of us uh, are our homeless ministry, our athletic ministry, our discipleship ministry. You know, for me, and I've always been this way, uh, I'm not a very complicated person. Uh, I don't like complicated things. I don't understand complicated things. I, I, the way I have to deal with things is to look at something that's complicated and and, and then completely break it down so I can understand it. I've been that way all of my life. And uh, to me, I have to find the simplest format by which it exists. And, you know, I, I had to do that with the Bible because the Bible really appears to be a very complicated book. But in reality, it isn't. We make it much more complicated than it really is because we're always going about it the wrong way. And I think that you're going to see today that uh, the aspect of what we're doing here the aspect of what God has called us to do, the aspect of what you're doing when you're discipling somebody or working one-on-one -on -one with somebody, the aspect of 
you going and, and being a captain in volleyball or uh, working with people, inviting your friends that uh, maybe don't have a church that uh, are good people and just need, you know, maybe some direction in their life or in their marriage, whatever. You know, the fact that, you know, we go down and we work with the less fortunate than ourselves, that we take of what we have and we give to others. Something as simple as bringing in the hamburgs and the hot dog buns. Something that we don't even think about. We don't even miss, but yet it means so much to what we're trying to do. We have defined ministry now as uh, the aspect of, of going through things in life, the tough things in life, the things that we have to learn the lessons from. Many times we go through things in life because we've done uh, made bad choices and done dumb things. We're all guilty of that. Sometimes we, uh, we, we have to learn through those mistakes. And when we learn through those mistakes from the Bible, then we become, you hear me say it all the time, well, we should become smarter than the problem. Being able to see a situation not as it appears, but as it really is based on the principles of the Word of God. Many times we'll go through bad times or suffering because of, of, of the godliness side of us, because we're actually doing what God wants us to do. And the Bible says that all ye that live uh, godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, like the book of Job. But we go through that suffering. We go through the things that we go through. And when we learn the cause and the effect through the Word of God and bring in the biblical principles to help our own problem, then we have the ability to step into somebody else's world and help them. And it's all based on what God does with the Word of God in your life. And uh, I'm going to begin reading again today uh, in chapter 1, verses 14 through 24. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, this next aspect that we quite didn't get to last week. It says this, As also you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. We covered that verse already. We know now that He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. The people that you minister to, the people whose li- your life, that God uses to change uh, their life in the day of the Lord Jesus, that the judgment seat of Christ, they will be your rejoicing and, and, and vice versa. And in this confidence of what he said in verse 14, I was minded to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. Now that's going to be the focus of our sermon today. Let's move on down through here. And, it, and, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come out again of Macedonia unto you, of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness, or the things that I purpose? Uh, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? Uh, verse 17 is a great verse. It basically says that whenever you work with people, Whenever you try to help people, it never can be in your own flesh. Uh, you know, you never, you, I, Bob Jones Sr. used to say, and it's, a great, it's a great, greatest, one of the greatest sayings I ever heard, and we do this all the time, but he said it's never right to do wrong to get the chance to do right. And, you know, you never, never, never shortcut the biblical principles to try to get somebody saved or help somebody uh, get through something in life, you'll find that one of the greatest characteristics of the Lord Jesus was the fact that whatever the person chose to do, right or wrong, it was based on the fact that they chose uh, based on the truth that he gave them. You'll never see him shortcutting the principle so somebody will get saved. 
And it just never works. And of course, that's a great lesson that this church had to learn. It's a great lesson that all of us have to learn. And that great saying, it ought to be in your Bible someplace, and certainly ought to be in your heart. It is never right to do wrong, to get the chance to do right. You just simply follow the principles of the Word of God, and everything else will take care of itself. But in verse 18, he says, But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. And basically, he's saying, we didn't come speaking out of both sides of our mouth. We didn't come saying, well, the Bible says this, but I'm going to do this. Our yea was yea, and our nay was nay. It was yes or no, and it was very clear because they did it by the principles of the Word of God. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and uh, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. Uh, for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, under the glory of God by us. Now he which established us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, or by faith, for by faith ye stand. Now, Father, help us today to uh, learn this great lesson today and help us to go home today a little better informed, a little better, uh, more closer to you, a little better in understanding of what you've done for us and what we need to do for you. And we'll simply thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I'm going to draw your attention to verse 24 again. I did this last week because I think that this is a great verse. And I think this says a lot about why we do what we do the way we do it. You know, you as parents, you have to be hard with your kids sometimes. You may even have to discipline them to the point where you have to spank them. I know that's not popular today, but that's just the way it is. And and it doesn't mean that you don't love them. It doesn't mean you don't care for them. It means that you know that if you don't take the corrective measures to keep them on course, you're going to have some problems. If you don't deal with them by the time they're 5 and 6 and 7, the police will by the time they're 15, 16, and 17. It's just that simple. And verse 24 is a great verse because he's saying to them, look, guys, not for that we have dominion over your faith. He says, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm not trying to uh, manipulate your life and to try to uh, micromanage everything you do, where you go, who you hang out with. He says, I'm not trying to do that. He says, but I'm a helper of your joy. Paul knew the great principle that joy only comes through the fellowship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fellowship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ is based on that grace verse in John, 1 John chapter 1, where it simply says uh, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And he says, I write these things unto you in 1 John chapter 1, that your joy, yeah, may be full. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's the thing you got to remember. And I want to talk to you today about what Paul says in verse 15 about a second benefit. Last week, I wanted to get to that, but uh, we spent... I thought with some great time talking about those four principles that we want to remember all the way through here and never forget. We talked about examining ourselves and knowing ourselves and taking heed to ourselves and then proving ourselves. And it was an interesting thing. As I finished last week and was getting ready to leave, somebody came up to me and said, uh, you know, I really appreciated the message today. You know, that last point, 
you went through examine yourself and know yourself and take heed to yourself. And then the last point you've been talking about was proving yourself. And they said, you know, I guess that that's true one way or the other, isn't it? And I thought about it and I said, absolutely right. Because you either do these things and you prove yourself or you don't do these things and you prove yourself. But it's just that simple. And I thought that was very profound. But I want to talk to you today about verse 15 and the second benefit. I think it's very important that we see and understand this, uh, not only in our ministry to people, as I told you last week, uh, but uh, for our own sakes of where we're at and what God was doing with you in our church right now. You know, I told you, I think I said this last week, and I've told you this a couple of times since the new year, that uh, I see what God is doing with, with many of you and how this whole working body of this church is probably working together now better than at any time in its history. And it's simply because of the level of spiritual maturity uh, that you're seeing. And you're going to see how that works today. I think one of the great things that's going to come out of today is that you're going to go out of here, and if you're discipling somebody, you're going to have a better understanding of what you want to try to accomplish with them. If you're in ministry you're going to have a better understanding of why you're in it and why you're supposed to be doing what you're doing. Uh, Either way, you're going to get a a better definition and a better understanding of exactly uh, what God wants to do with you and, and, and how He wants to do it. And I've seen many times that, and I told you this last week, that we're like sponges. And if you go ever used a sponge, you know that a sponge is a, is a, is a unique creature, and it comes from the bottom of the sea. And a sponge is a unique thing because of the fact that when it gets processed, you can take that sponge, and if something is spilled or uh, something is wet, you can take that sponge and run it across there three or four times, and it will absorb everything that you get into it. And you and I are much like that. We're like sponges. And when you come to church, you come to Thursday night Bible study, uh, you know, what you do is you, whether you know it or not, you absorb. You absorb what I say. You go home and you have your own studies where you you work things out. You absorb that. But just like a sponge, a sponge can only absorb so much. And, uh, you know, you get a sponge that at at its saturation point, and a sponge, you can just rub it all over water now, and it'll just push the water. It won't absorb anymore. And the reason why it won't is because it is absorbed to its capacity. Now what has to be done is a very simple thing. You just take that sponge and you go over to the sink and you wring it out. You wring it out and as you wring it out, the water that was saturated is wrung out and now you can reuse that sponge. And that's the way you and I are as God's people. And this is why ministry is absolutely so vital. You come on Sunday morning and Thursday night and you absorb. But what happens is if you're not careful, you get to a point where you reach your saturation point. And you may have a lot of Bible knowledge, but you're not good to anybody. And what happens is that you have to take what you know, and you have to be wrung out. And the wringing out is ministry of giving what you've accumulated out to somebody else so there's room to take more. And that's exactly the way the whole process worked. And I've seen it so many times in this all of my life in ministry, and I certainly have seen it here and since we've started, and really in the last three or four years, how I told you how God will bring you to a point. He'll bring you into this church, you'll get discipled, you'll get involved, you'll find out what's going on, and then you'll jump into things, and, and, and you'll, you'll start learning, you'll start growing, uh, and suddenly, at a point, God will give you an opportunity. And that's really like a crossroads in your life, because at that point, you have to make a decision. 
You're either going to stay who you are and keep absorbing, become that overbalanced, bloated sponge that really cannot absorb anymore, or you're going to let God take you to somebody, take you to certain ministry circumstances, and then wring you out. That's how you grow. And I've seen that in your life, many of you, uh, in the last couple of years, and uh, that's the way God always does it. He'll bring you to a point, He'll give you an opportunity within the church to be able to minister by the book, doing it the way it needs to be done. Our choice then will be say, yeah, I'm going to take it, or no, I'm not. And that's just simply how it works. You know, one of the greatest studies in the Bible that I think is probably a a really an unknown study in the Bible is really the study of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, The definitive chapter on the Holy Spirit of God is in John chapter 16, if you didn't know that already. And in John chapter 16, he gives us the seven functions that the Spirit of God does. And that's where you really start. But if you want to start even before that, I think you have to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And I discovered this many, many years ago. It's been something I never forgot, and I've used it in my own life many times, and I use it in dealing with you also. And it is the fact that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible simply says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, we want to forget all the doctrinal implications between chapter 1 and 1 and 1, 2. We don't want to worry about that today. What we want to focus on is the fact that the Bible says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. You know, when the Spirit of God, the first time you find it in the Bible, and that is the first time in Genesis 1, 2, you find that it's moving. You realize that the Spirit of God never stops from that point on. When we study church history or you study the great age of, of the Bible or, or where all, how all things go about, you'll find that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, uh, basically the Holy Spirit of God filed his flight plan, where he was going to go. When you trace it through the Bible and trace it through history, the Holy Spirit of God moves from east to west. That is the movement of the Holy Spirit of God through the Bible. You're going to find uh, all through the Old Testament, every move from the Bible from east to west is a good move. All the moves backwards to the east are always a bad move. Horace Greeley just kind of hit on it back in the 1800s when he said, go west, young man. You're going to find that European history where the Bible goes east to west. You're going to find that revivals go east to west throughout the world. You're going to find that all the great inventions and all the great movement down through history will be in east to westerly movement, because that is the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. And when you understand that, you you see how it all kind of plays together. We talked about Ecclesiastes the other night, Thursday night Bible study, and yet we talked about the 28 things there and how it lines up to the 28 revolutions of the moon and, and rotations and all of that stuff, moon type as a Christian. But you stop and think about it, the beauty of the architecture of the way God does things. Note now, the earth... Uh, the earth goes the opposite way. The earth goes from west to east. But the sun moves across the sky from east to west, sun being a type of Christ. So what you have in the very creation of things is to show you that that God and the Holy Spirit of God will always move in opposition to which way the world goes. And that's an incredible principle in the Bible. And that's why, again, a Christian has to always go the right way. And the question today really is, are you going anywhere? Are you moving at all? 
Because the spirit-filled child of God will always do the same thing. We'll always need to keep moving in our relationship with God. You see, my fundamental job as a preacher, and maybe you don't appreciate this as much as I do. I don't always like it. But, but my, my job as a, as a pastor, any job of a pastor, is to make sure that when you come to church and you kind of decide to hang out here, my job is to make sure that every Sunday you don't get too comfortable where you're at. Now, I want you to be comfortable. We got nice chairs for you. We got the fans going today. We try to cool it off in the summertime. That doesn't work too well. But we try to keep you warm in the wintertime. But you all wear coats anyhow and cover up just like most of you are doing here. So you're very self-sufficient. But the bottom line is you don't ever want to go to the church where when a guy gets up to preach, he's working at trying to make you comfortable. Because that won't work. Because human nature, we always like to get comfortable. And you don't need to be comfortable. You know why? Because as a child of God, because the Holy Spirit of God is always moving, you and I need to always be moving. There should never be a time in our life as a Christian where we're stagnant, where we're not going anywhere. That's a bad sign because the Holy Spirit of God never is stagnant. It's always moving. Once it started in Genesis chapter 1 and moved upon the face of the waters, it never stops till it, it comes into the millennium. And it's moving today. And that's why a spirit-filled child of God uh, will always do the same thing. Keep moving in their relationship, but you have to move in the right direction. And that's really what the job of the church is. It's to make sure that you and I don't get too comfortable in our Christian life. That we're always happy with where we're at if we're moving forward, but we're never satisfied to stay there. And that's what preaching does. That's why experience. Uh, preaching motivates us. It, it keeps us to the point that we look back and say, wow, I'm not where I was. Thank the Lord for that. But boy, I got a ways to go here and it always keeps you going. And the way that you do that is by keep taking the opportunities. Now listen to me, that God gives you, not the ones you create yourself. God will never create a scenario in your life that is outside the principles of this book. He just simply will not do that. It'll always be found within the pages of this book. And when you put yourself into that system, that's when you begin to grow. Now, I want to look at this passage I just read here. And I want to build it around the great concept of a second benefit. But to do that, I want to kind of reverse it. And I want to, I, I want to do what the Bible says. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. I want to take the last part of this passage and preach to it first. And then we'll see how the thing works out. Now, you've heard me say many, many times uh, the great verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I, I say this all the time, so you don't get comfortable. And that, that is where he says that he hath begun a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And you've heard me say it many, many times. God saved you for a purpose. If you're here this morning and you're a child of God and you're not actively pursuing your spiritual growth, uh, that's, that's not what God wants you to do. You may be the finest person in the world, and you probably are. But as far as your relationship with God is concerned, that's not what God saved you for. Uh, God saved you for a purpose. And many times, because we get lackadaisical and we don't cave with the Holy Spirit of God, we get the idea that God saved us for our purpose. He didn't save us for our purpose. And you're going to see that clearly today. If you're discipling people today, you're going to go away today with a better formula and a better plan of what you're trying to accomplish. If you're working with people today and helping them, you're going to go out of here now with a better understanding because here it is, spiritual growth. Here it is. 
completely explained and defined for you how that process of spiritual growth that leads to spiritual maturity takes place in our lives, or at least the way that it should. Now, I want you to focus on the last part of this passage. Look at verse 20, 21, and 22. He says this, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, under the glory of God by us. Now, he which established, that's an old English word, our word for that today would be to establish, he which established us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, and who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, I want you to look at those two verses, three verses for a moment, and what I want to do is I want to extract four things out of there that, uh, that when we put them in the order that they happen to us, it shows you the four essential things God puts in your life and my life that we have to have if we're going to fulfill God's plan for our life that we get to the point where God can use us. And I'm telling you, if you disciple people or you work with people, this ought to be the behind-the-scenes goal that you're trying to accomplish. And we take these things out of the verses and put them in the order that it happened in our lives, wow, it becomes a great thing. Four incredible, four incredible uh, uh, principles here to, uh, to get us to the point of spiritual maturity. Now, the first thing he says and it is in verse 22, and he says, he seals us. Now, we know from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that the Bible said the day you got saved, you and I were sealed under the day of redemption. So there's your salvation. When you came to the place in your life that you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, that's what the Holy Spirit of God did. He sealed you. You see, one of, if you go back to John chapter 16, you'll find that one of the things that the Holy Spirit of God does in those seven things that He does, one of the first things He does is convict us. He convicts us of sin. When he convicts us of sin and we respond to that, then it's the Holy Spirit of God who, when we get saved, seals us. And that's what he's saying here. The first thing that took place in your life was the fact that God sealed you. And that's the day of salvation. And this begins the process. Now, when you come into our church and maybe you just get saved or you've been saved for a while but kind of just been wandering around and not had any direction in your life... We put you into a program of ministry here that extends from Sunday morning to Thursday night to everybody else involved that works with me in ministry. And I said it last week, I've said it many, many times, that's the job of this church, reproducing men and women who will do ministry God's way by the book. And when you get that happening to the tune of 50, 60, 70 people doing it, then this is what makes a church successful. So verse 22 said, he seals us. Now look at verse 20. He says, for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, under the glory of God by us. The next thing that God gives us is the promises of God. How many times have you heard me talk about those little three-by-five cards that so many of you have? And everybody in this church got started on that at some place or the other. You all pass them out. I started that simply because that when you first got sealed, saved, you didn't really understand the Word of God, but there were key principles in your life that you had to get down. Now, I, so we put them on three-by-five cards, and many of, you, uh, many of you have hundreds of them by now, and I see you have them in your purse. You pull them out. You'll show them. You'll give them to somebody else. I learned that basic, simply, simple concept when I was in the fifth grade. 
And uh, I never got past the seventh grade, but I sure learned a lot in the fifth and the sixth grade. Back then, my teacher uh, was teaching multiplication uh, tables. You know, 1, 1, 1, 2.2, 2 plus 3, 3, 4, right up the line. You can see I've forgotten them. But anyway. Okay, get it out of your system and then we can get on. Honey, would you sit over here? I don't want you next to him or him. I'll tell you what, you look like too good a girl to be. Now, that's a road between two thorns right there. I want to tell you that right now. Anyway. <clears throat> she stand up there with flashcards. And she'd do them. And the whole class like this would have to say them off. Three times six is 18, you know, down the line. And you go up through the whole section. I remember that just as clear. There's two things I remember in, in, out of my grade school. One was always a half-finished picture of George Washington. <laughs> I don't know why I never finished it. Really, there's, there's three things. The second one, did you know that in every grade school, in elementary, the alphabet was always around the top of the school? You ever wonder why that is? Now, there's a, there's a mindset to that. Every school you ever went to, half picture of George Washington, never finished. And, and then the alphabet was all around the top. And somebody figured out that kids our age were just looking around at everything. So if we're going to look around, we might as well see the alphabet, see? But it was those flashcards. She'd stand there and do those things. And when I saw that, for years and years and years, even to this day, I'm a little nervous today, but even to this day, I remember those multiplication tables, and I can visualize in my mind that teacher doing those things, and I can see them there. Based on that principle is why we put principles, promises, on three-by-five cards. When you have a tough time in life, you know what? You, uh, that's what you do. You go for those principles. In time, you transfer them from those cards in here. But it takes a process. And you, you have those cards with you. Many of you will have them all of your life. But you take those cards and you use them because that is the basis for you getting the promises of God. And those promises of God, you build yourself into the Bible. You build yourself into the Bible. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 29 says, how do you teach somebody doctrine? You teach them line upon line, principle upon principle. You put one principle on top of another principle. And I've told you before, your body is like a temple. The temple was made out of, uh, out of, out of, of stone overlaid with gold. And you look at a building, and a book, building is it, what holds it together is the bricks. But they notice they don't just lay the bricks on top of each other. They tie those bricks in at a different angle on top of the brick course below it. And that's where the strength comes. And that's what you do. And the key to spiritual maturity is thinking that every one of those bricks is a biblical principle and you tie them into your life that in time you have those principles. And now here's what happens. Verse 22, you get sealed. Verse 20, the promises of God. Ah, look at verse 21. Now he who, uh, now he which establishes us. See, you get established. I'm going to tell you, there's only one road to spiritual maturity. And it's not always an easy road, but it's the only road. And that is one biblical principle at a time. Now, I want you to see something here because this is amazing. He says down there, he says, look at verse 21. Now, he which established us. Notice it doesn't say, now, he who establishes us. Because if it was who, then you could go back to the verse and say that it was God that established you. But he doesn't say who because it's not God that establishes you. The which, my friend, goes back to the promises of God which establish you. Not a who. In other words, God doesn't come down and just establish you. 
God takes the principles and the promises that you put in your heart, and that's what he takes to establish you. You can love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, but if you don't get God's principles down, the which, the promises, you're never going to get established. That's why the Bible talks about the Word of God by being a treasure. That's why the Bible talks about the Word of God being a treasure in your heart. It, it, we talk about it all the time, about having a principled life. When you went to grade school, there was one guy who was at, or high school, there was one guy who was at the top of the chain who made sure that you learned everything you did. It was his responsibility to make sure you got all truth that that, church, that uh, school had to give you. And his name was the principal. And the principal was the guy that made sure that you learned the principles of learning in life. Well, I'm telling you what, that's the key to maturity is a principled life. Not doing things the way we want to do them and then trying to make it work like it's really of God. No, 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 no. It's never right to do wrong to get the chance to do right. You stay by the principles of the Word of God, come hell or high water, that's what you stay with. And it's the principles of God's Word. Those little three-by-five cards, those verses that God gives you one at a time when you go over things in life that help you, get you through, that God puts into your life that in time establishes you, and there is where the spiritual maturity is. This is why many people, when they go through a tough time in life, they can never handle it themselves. They can never handle themselves. I've told you the story many, many times about a guy that goes into the bank and he, he goes up to the bank teller and says, I need to get, he tells you this elaborate story how his engine blew up in his car and he needs to get $2,500 because that's what it takes to get fixed. And she's smiling and says, that'll be fine. What's your account number? And he gives her the account number. She goes and looks it up on that little computer, you know, and then comes back and says, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, you only got $1.98 on the account. And he said, well, that may be true, but you don't understand. My engine blew up and I, got, I need $2,500. You're a bank. You got all kinds of money. She says, I'm sorry, sir, you only got $1.98 on your account. She says, don't tell me that. I watched so-and-so over here. He was at the window before me. You gave him $1,500. If you knew what I knew about him, you wouldn't give him any money. (laughs) Tell her, says, I don't care anything about him. He put the money on the account. He's got it. You don't have anything on that account. Now, biblical principles are called a treasure. The Word of God is called a treasure hidden in your heart. Now, when tough times come, the reason why you fall apart, you can't get through it, you have to have oodles of help to get you past it, is because you have wasted your time, and just like the guy standing at the teller in the bank saying, I need this money, she says there's nothing on account. You stand there before God and say, well, I'm your child, I'm this, I'm that. You're supposed to come down and help me. God says, I'd love to. you got nothing on the account. Hide the word of God in your heart. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Putting it onto account is what establishes you. So you get saved. You get sealed. You begin to get the promises. The promises lead to you being established. Ah, look at verse 21. Hath anointed us. Now see, these four things are incredible because in the anointing in the Bible... In the Old Testament is a picture of, of the Holy Spirit of God. When they anointed a king in the Old Testament, the prophet came in and he was God's man uh, to lead the nation of Israel, God's people. And when the prophet anointed him as king, he took a vial of oil and he poured it on his head. 
And that oil ran down over his head, through his face, in his beard, and all the way down his body. That was symbolic of the Holy Spirit of God anointing him to do the work that God has called him to do to be the king of Israel. When you got sealed, friend, you got anointed. God saved you for a purpose. God saved you for a reason. The reason why we never figured it out is because you never take it past the being sealed part. You never get the promises. You never get established, so therefore you never get anointed. Now, do you know why some of you now are taking the opportunity that God has given you and you're doing something in ministry versus people who are not? And this is not a criticism of anybody. It's just a plain Bible truth. Do you know why you're stepping out? Because you're now going to let God use you. You're going to take the opportunity God has put in front of you, no matter what it may be, and you're going to actually go out there and do something. I'll tell you why. It's because you got saved, you got the promises, you got established, and now you're at that point where God is going to anoint you to do the work that God's called you to do. He saved you for a purpose. He saved you for a purpose. He has a plan for your life. Now, after you get to that point in your life, you have to meet. Your, hey, it's all going to be very clear today. Once you get to that point in your life, now you have been sealed. Now you have the promises. Now you have been established. Now you have been anointed. You and I are still the worst train wreck we ever saw on this planet. So now we have to maintenance what we have, don't we? You know how we maintenance it? Examine yourself. Know yourself. Take heed to yourself. Prove yourself, and in some cases, shoot yourself. (laughs) God saved us for a reason. He has a plan. He has a plan. Now, these four areas show you what your growth process should be and how you build it one concept at a time. And when you're discipling somebody, you're working with me in ministry with somebody, they've got problems you're trying to work them through. What you do is you take the Bible principles that you have established, here it comes, your own life with. You got sealed, you got the promises, now you have been established with God, you understand you're living your life, a principled life to the best of your ability. And now God anoints you and you take that same process and you put it in somebody else's life. Now here it comes. Don't you hate when you go to the doctor? I had a particular procedure done a little while back that I will not tell you what it was. (coughs) But it was not a pleasant one. And my doctor is one of the nicest doctors that you're ever going to find. He's a very caring guy. I think he's probably saved. I really like him a lot. He likes me. He remembers me. He knows I'm a pastor. He called me Reverend. And I just said, my name is Bob. <laughs> but they're big on that. He's a doctor. I'm a Revere end, so we kind of got to, you know, do whatever. So, and, and I'm laying on the table. And he's doing his deal. And I hate. I hate when he reaches up and taps me on the shoulder and says, now this is going to hurt a little bit. One, you know he's lying. It ain't going to hurt a little bit. It's going to hurt a lot. <clears throat> but he's preparing you out of the kindness of his heart because he doesn't. I don't, this guy, anyhow, I think all doctors are wonderful and they're all the same. But this guy, he's very compassionate. He doesn't want to hurt you. I mean, he's very careful in what he does. 
And he was, he was telling, and I, I love him for it, and I appreciate it. He reached up very gingerly, tapped me on the shoulder, and said, now, now Reverend, <laughs> he said, this is going to hurt a little bit. And, you know, and I, and I, you know, I just said, okay, you know what? <clears throat> okay. And he was right. He was 100% right. He didn't lie to me. It hurt a lot. <clears throat> I say all that to tell you this. What I'm about to tell you is going to hurt a little bit. <clears throat> And I'm afraid that I wish I could just preach this to you and I could escape it, but this one God's going to kill us all with, I do believe. Now, after we look at these four areas, I want you to see, and remember now, our concept today, and here really lies our message on the second benefit. Look at verse 22. Who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our heart. Now, there's a good unknown term the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Let's talk about that for a moment. Let's put that into a practical thing. How many people ever bought a house? Well, good. Either the rest of you are lying or you don't know what I'm talking about today. When you buy a house, when you get ready to buy it and close the deal. I don't remember when. We bought a house 18 years ago, and I don't remember how all the process went, but it was either the realtor company or the bank. When you get ready to close that deal, they're going to ask for what they call earnest money. You see, and that can be anywhere from $500 to $1,000. The earnest money is what you put down to show you are really committed to buy the house and go through with the transaction. Now, you all understand that? Okay. This is going to hurt a little bit. When God saved you and me, He gave you and me, the Bible says, the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says that He bought you and me. The contract for our salvation and us being sealed was was made at Calvary's cross. And keep in mind now, nobody forced you to get saved. Nobody came over and put a double hammer lock on you and pinned you to the ground and forced you to get saved. You made that choice on your own free choosing. And the day you accepted him, he gave you the Spirit of God in earnest, the earnest of the Spirit, as a down payment on the contract that you would give your life to him because he gave his life for you. Our accepting of God's salvation and his down payment for us It set the contract in motion and showed the sincerity of the buyer, God, toward me. Now, the Christian life and where you're at today is to become, right now, maybe for the first time in your life, the most crystal clear thing that you've ever seen. You will never have to go out of here and scratch your head again and say, I wonder what's wrong with me. You'll never have to wonder about, are you doing what's right or are you not? The great thing about the Bible, and I told you when I started, I have to break things down that are so simplistic to me that that, that even I can understand it. And never again now, based on what we're looking at today, 
Maybe you'll lie to yourself. Maybe you'll lie to the person sitting next to you. I don't know. But you, deep down in your heart, you'll never be able to lie to God again and say, I don't understand it because the process of what's wrong with you and me today is real clear. It's real clear. It's real clear. And simply what's wrong with you and me today, that we have taken God's earnest money, the Spirit of God, and then we reneged on a contract. He gave us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. He gave that based on the fact that he had confidence that we would fulfill the contract made at Calvary's cross, that he gave up everything for us that we would understand and give up everything for him. We took the earnest of the Spirit and then reneged on the contract. What's where our problem is today. Just that simple, folks. The bottom line is, we're crooks. We're Christian crooks, but we're crooks. We have defrauded God on the contract. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that serving God and being a living sacrifice, keep in mind, he became a sacrifice for you and me in the cross. He didn't ask you and me to die for him. He asked you and I to be a living sacrifice in living for him. And he put the earnest of the Spirit down to seal that contract because he thought you and I was trustworthy. We ripped him off royal. We're crooks. We've defrauded God from what is our reasonable service. And it does not get any plainer today if you're a Christian why and who we really are. Take off that mask. Now in connection with all of this, Paul talks about a second benefit. I might add that there's more heresy taught about this than you could ever imagine. The charismatic church teaches that when you got saved, you did not get all of the Holy Spirit of God. So after a period of time, you get what they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Evidenced by speaking in tongues. And at that point in time, now you completely have all of this spirit. They call it a second work of grace. Now, you didn't get all of the Holy Spirit of God the day you got saved, but at some point later on, you get the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And at that point now, the evidence of that is speaking in tongues, and now you have all of God there is, and you have had that second work of grace. Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Episcopal Church, they take the second benefit, and they teach that as baptism for salvation or confirmation. That once you join the Catholic Church, Lutheran Church, or Episcopalian Church, and I'm not fighting anybody, I'm just telling you what they teach. They believe that at a point when you get baptized, that you baptize that baby, or when you get a little bit older and you go through uh, the confirmation that you're confirmed now, that uh, uh, whatever faith, uh, the, one of them it is, that at that point, then that's when you get the second benefit, the benefit of confirmation. Now, goofy Baptist. And see, I'm much harder on Baptists because we are Baptists, so goofy Baptists. It was just Catholic Lutherans and Episcopalians and Charismatics. I didn't even call them Charismaniacs. <laughs> but goofy Baptist. 
Goofy Baptist. See, you pray for the power and get it after salvation at some time, and they call this the second blessing. Okay. Now, I'm a simple guy. When I read about the second benefit, maybe it's just me now, but I would think that that means that there's a first benefit. Might be wrong. But I know when there's most things, there's a second one, there's usually a first one. And I would think the answer to figuring out what this is would not be make up some goofy little thing because you didn't know. If we go back and find where the first one was, first of all, I'd get the context of where the second benefit it is. And I see the context is in the book that defines in a book on handbook on ministry. So I might think now, just me kibitzing here for a moment, but I might think that it might have something to do with ministry. You see, there are two benefits for the child of God when you put it into a Bible context. Now, the first benefit that we had would be the day we got saved, wouldn't it? The day you got saved, I'd say that was a benefit, wouldn't you? Amen. Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm not going charismatic on you, but amen. amen. That's a benefit. I'd say that's a pretty good benefit. I mean, uh, uh, when you got saved, that would be your first benefit, the day you got saved. And, uh, you know, you look at that thing, and uh, that was a great benefit that God gave us. And that's where he put the earnest of the Spirit down in our hearts. Now, the second benefit would obviously be the aspect when you get to the point of spiritual maturity, once you go through the process of spiritual growth where you got the, the, the sealed, you got the promises, you got the right up to the, uh, right up to the, uh, to the anointing. And the second benefit would be the day that you start to fulfill your original contract that God put the earnest money down on the day you got saved. You say, what's the second benefit of that? It's called the judgment seat of Christ. But you see, charismatics and goofy Baptists, they don't even believe in the judgment seat of Christ anymore. In the judgment seat of Christ, you get your reward. But then you have something called the millennium, which would be another aspect of the second benefit of doing ministry, where you get your inheritance. You see, spiritual growth contains a process that's built around these two benefits. It's easy. It's real easy. Nothing hard today. We just don't want to do it. At the first benefit, here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. Tap you on the shoulder again. It's going to sting a little bit. At the first benefit, you get all of the Holy Spirit of God there is. See? That's it. At the second benefit, you go through a process. You get saved, first benefit. You go through the process. The process is getting the uh, getting sealed, getting the promises, getting established, getting the anointing for God to do something with you. God put the earnest of the Spirit down on you the day you got saved. He wrote a contract. You accepted it by the agreement. So the first benefit is the day God saved you. When you get all of God there is, at the second benefit, it comes to that point of spiritual maturity that God gets all of you there is for the purpose of ministry. I'll tell you something. Every issue in life you and I have, I'm telling you right now, every issue that you and I have in life comes right down to that thing right there if you're saved. If you got heartache, you got problems, you got issues in your life, I realize that God, you go through things because you live godly. I'm not talking about that. I'm telling you this. The reason why we are depressed, the reason why we are broken, the reason why we have issues, the reason why we can't get ahead in life, the reason why we have problem after problem after problem after problem is that we stole God's earnest money and broke the contract. 
I'm here just to be a helper to your joy. Remember last week in Job, or the week before last in Job 34, 23, you better, if you didn't write that verse down, you're in trouble. But that's a great verse. It says that God won't, everything that we go through, God only puts it on us so we'll do right. Problem is simple, folks. God died on the cross. The day you got saved, he gave you the earnest of the spirit in your heart. He made a down payment on you that because he gave you everything, you were going to give him everything. And that's what he saved you for. You'll benefit in your life, your family, for doing so. Now, after salvation, you enter into a process of growth. We've talked about it all morning. You get sealed. It leads to the promises. It leads to being established. It leads to being anointed. And then you begin to fulfill the original contract. In the first benefit, you got sealed. In the second benefit, you come to the place where you have grown now and you see and understand the benefit of the first one and then you begin to fulfill the second one. And that benefit is the testimony in our own personal life, the testimony of a good conscience with God. We talked about it the first week, the blessings of God, the power of God. It's simply put, ladies and gentlemen, and now that we know, I love this. This is, this is, there's no, there's no, finally, we've got to a point where we're all on the same page. We're all on the same page. Simply put, the second benefit is the day in your life the game is over. The cloak is gone. The mask is taken off. Where he gave you at salvation all of him, now you give him all of you. And the process to get there. And that's why this year will be a banner year for many of you. It'll be your year of second benefit. The process is evident in your life. And this is taught all the way through the Bible. And I don't know if you've ever seen it or not, just to take it to the next step. You know, you understand the concept of the second benefit now. You understand the concept of the earnest of the Spirit. You get that whole thing put down now. Here's the example in the Bible. And the example is built around seven people. And you heard me talk about it many times. We just never connected all the dots. It's simply found in the Bible the day that God changes their name, you see. Now, what does that mean in the Bible? It means that they have come through the process. And when they come through the process, they got to a point where now they had some issues they had to deal with. But they came to the point where they took the mask off. They came to the point where the game is over. They came to the point where they know now playing games with God and doing it your way and claiming God is part of it when it's all your all flesh is a dead end street. And at that point, when you get to that point in your life, when you get to that point in your life, if you ever get to that point in your life, God changes your name. Now, I, I, years ago, I took an intensive study of this because I'll tell you what, these people were, they're all incredible. And I began to look at these seven people and I began to apply them to myself. Examine yourself. And the first one, as you know, when we come down through here is, is Abram. And he's found all the way back in Genesis chapter 16 through Genesis chapter 22. His name is Abram. Abram means high father. But We've talked about his struggles before. We talked about how that he goes through all of the things that he goes through. How he, he can't really trust God. How he still tries to take charge of things. 
He's not the leader of his home that he needs to be. And we get into all kinds of problems. But after many, many years, uh, 12 or 13 or 14, 15 years in a couple of chapters, but really he's 99 years old, 99 years. He did it his way. And finally in Genesis chapter 17, when he's 99 years old, he came to the end of self. He took off the mask. He dumped the cloak. And he said, okay, God, I've done it my way enough. I'm going to do it your way now. You have anointed me to be a father of many nations. God said, okay, then that's good. We're going to change your name from Abram, which means high father, to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. 99 years of a cloak. 99 years of a mask. His wife was no better off. Her name in Genesis chapter 16 through 22 up to that point was, was Sarai. Sarai means princess. Now Sarah, Sarai, she, she had a lot of the same problems. And I look at these lives and I see myself in it. I see God's people in it. As a pastor knowing people and seeing their problems and their issues. Hey, I want to tell you something. I, I don't know what your problems are today. Maybe you don't have any. But if you have some, I want some news for you. I can solve your problems in 15 minutes. It's that simple. If you're saved. I can solve it faster than that if you're not saved. Sarai, the princess. I love it. Abraham, high father. Sarai, princess. Oh, can't you just see her? She couldn't believe the promises of God. God told her, I'm going to give you the promised seed. Oh, no, no, no. She could not wait for the promised seed, so she did it herself. I've seen you guys and you gals, I've told you a thousand times, wait for the one God's going to give you. Wait for the man or the woman that God will bring in. Oh, no, 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 no. You like Sarai, Miss Princess, Mr. High Father, you have to do it yourself. Because she did that back there for the next 4,000 years, the nation of Israel, her children down the line, paid the price because she couldn't wait on God, and so will you. It's never right to do wrong to get the chance to do right. Her children have been paying that price for that mistake for over 4,000 years, and so will yours. She couldn't trust God. She had to get in there and do it herself because she's the princess. And she made a mess out of it. And it's always a mess when you do it your way instead of God's way. But in Genesis chapter 17, God changed her name to Sarah, which means I will bless her with many nations. You see, these people are in here for a reason. 
The second benefit, first benefit is the day you got saved. The second benefit is the day you come to the end of self and you start to fulfill the contract that God put the earnest money down, the earnest of his spirit, the day he died on Calvary's cross. Now we got the third one, Jacob. Oh. All of us will fit into this category. His name is Jacob. Jacob means supplanter. Jacob means schemer. Jacob is the guy who, like all of us, all his life he manipulates every circumstance. All his life he manipulates every person he comes into contact with. He schemes to get what he wants when he wants it. He completely put gods out of his life until he gets into a jam and then God is the most important thing in his life. He schemes to get the blessing from Esau. He schemed to get the birthright from Esau. When the Bible tells us very clearly, he would have gotten it anyhow. You see, there's things that God are going to bring into your life that you want right now, but you're not ready for them. But, oh, you think you know more about it than God does, don't you? Yes, we do. There's been times in my life when I thought I knew more about my life than God does. What a foolish person I was. And that's Jacob. That's Jacob. That's Jacob. He schemes to get the cattle from Laban. He gets into a bargain with Laban to try to scheme to get the wife that he wants. He gets caught in his own scheme and gets the wrong wife and has to keep going. Oh, it's incredible, his life. His family is mess. His boys commit murder. He has issues with Esau all of his life, and they go right up to the century we live in today. And now all the way up to Genesis chapter, all through his life, all the way up to Genesis chapter 32, he just schemes and manipulates and does whatever he wants to do the way he wants to do it because he wants to get what he wants and yet he wants to pretend that he's right with God. Oh, he prays great. He even gets right with God a couple of times, but he goes right back to the same old scheme. And you know why? Because he hadn't got to the point yet where he was broken. And boy, in Genesis chapter 32, train wreck. I got in my Bible in Genesis chapter 32 in big letters at the top, so I'll never forget it. The God, day God gets you alone. And boy, he can do that in such a way. God changed his name in that chapter, and from Jacob, schemer, and supplanter, now he becomes Israel, blessing of God, the name of the 12 tribe from which are going to come from him, by which all the earth is going to enjoy the blessings of God. But God changed his name only after he took off the mask. And sometimes it hurts to take off that mask. Sometimes we wear that mask so long that it becomes part of our skin. It's like when you go get blood. It isn't the fact they stick the needle in your arm and take out blood. It's when they put that Band-Aid on and you've got to rip it off an hour later and it tears all the hair off your arm. I had a nice lady the last time, you know, she's a real sweet lady, and I had to get blood, and she put it up there, and she says, I said, I don't need a Band-Aid. And she says, well, it may bleed. And I said, that's all right, I'm a vampire, I'll just suck on it. <laughs> she said, okay, see you later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding you. Sometimes it becomes so much a part of us. Sometimes we live the lie and the phoniness for so long that we actually think, we're okay with God when the reality is 
if the Bible's the checklist, my, my goodness, you're going to wear out 10 red pencils. And in Genesis chapter 32, bang, it all comes to a creation halt. Many times in your life and my life, it comes to a screeching halt. And the train wreck is what it takes in Jacob's life. From that point on, you see a distinct change. Now, the next one you got here is another favorite of mine, and that's uh, old Simon Bar-Jonah, who gets later called Peter. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, Peter is the poster boy for immaturity in the Bible, in the New Testament anyhow. He's the big talker. He always wants to step in. He's the guy that when he was going to take the Lord, was going to fight for him, was so lousy as a sword, he, instead of cutting the guy's head off, he just cut his ear off. <coughs> and because of all his bolsterous talk and all the things that he liked to put out there that he was really God's man when he wasn't, like most of the guys just like Peter, when push comes to shove, he winds up denying the Lord. He totally operates on emotion instead of biblical principles. I think one of the greatest studies, I think one of the greatest studies is in chapter 21, verse 18, when Christ meets him after he denied him. Keep in mind now that they hadn't seen each other and the Lord's back, and it's one of the most incredible, heart-moving, tender places. I can't read it without weeping. And I don't read, read it and weep because of him. I read it and weep because I've seen myself there so many times. And it's such a tender moment. It's a tender moment because even though he denied the Lord, the Lord never denied Peter. And he's standing there, you know, and they're sitting around there eating, and, and uh, they're all having a great time. And Peter, you know, Peter was in the boat. Maybe this will help make some sense out of it. They're in the boat in the water, and the Lord, after the resurrection, comes walking on the water over to them. And they say, it's the Lord. You know what Peter does? He jumps out of the boat, swims ashore. He knew he just denied him. He ain't ready to see him yet. But yet Peter's with the 12. He's pretending that everything is okay, even though it's not. So they're sitting around the fire. And I just see this. I see it myself. They're sitting around the fire, and they're all happy, and they're all laughing, and they're all, they're all just having a great time. And Peter's just sitting there miserable. And he wants to look at the Lord, but he can't, you know, and there's everybody's around him and the Lord's down here and there's four or five people between him. So he kind of tweaks back a little bit, a little forward, trying to get a peek of the Lord, you know, without the Lord seeing him. And one moves this way, one moves that way, and it opens up and he kind of looks down there thinking he's going to get a glimpse of the Lord. And there's the Lord looking right back at him. <laughs> it's <laughs> finally the Lord and him get confronted. Oh, what a great story. The Lord asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And every time he says, yes, Lord, I, I love you, you know, God tells him something to do. But the Lord asks him three times because Peter denied him three times, and the last time it all comes into Peter's mind, and Peter makes one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. He says, Lord, thou knowest all things. What he's saying there is, says, yes, Lord, I was an idiot. I shot my mouth off too many times. I thought I was a big-time apostle. And Lord, yeah, I didn't, wasn't there in the punch. And yeah, I denied you. But Lord, yeah, you know I love you. And at that thing, the Lord says, Peter, feed my sheep. From that point on, Peter becomes the apostle to the nation of Israel. From that point on, we find that Peter 
he went through a growth process. I, I love 1 Peter and 2 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle. Da -da 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 -da. But in 2 Peter, when he writes sometime later, he says, Peter, a servant of Jesus Christ. He learned some things. He went through a process. The next one's my favorite. It's, it's Paul, when God changed his name or from Saul to Paul. Acts chapter 13, verse 9. Now, here's our model. He was a wicked man who killed Christians, got saved, and never looked back. You want a model to go by? This is it. Apostle Paul was Mel Sabaka's favorite character in the Bible. Heard him say it a thousand times. And he was as much like the Apostle Paul as every man I ever met. He certainly was the Apostle Paul in my life because when he got saved, he simply never looked back. It's interesting in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, when God changes his name. It's right after he... His name is Simon, and he wins a guy to Christ, and that guy's name is Paul, and it, he changes his name and names him after the guy who just won to Christ. That's an interesting thing in the Bible. But it was in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, where he accounted, and oh, you wait till we get to this, where he got the real look at heaven. That God took him off this planet and took him up to heaven. And when he was up there, he saw things that were unspeakable, and he saw everything that God had for him. And then God, God, I'm sure God had to get four or five angels to throw him over the banners to heaven and get him to come back down to earth. But when he hit the ground, he never was the same again. You know why? Because he saw and understood what the first benefit was, and he was going to make sure he fulfilled his contract. Say, boy, I wish I could go to heaven and see all the things that would change my life. You fool. You get the same thing out of this book that he got going up there. You get more than he got. Your problem is, my problem is, we don't want to do it. Then we have two guys that are just the, the opposite. Boy, I've seen a lot of God's people over the years just like this. In 2 Kings chapter 12, you have a guy who's a king of Israel. Uh, his name is Jehoash. Now, Jehoash means fire for Jehovah. But God winds up changing his name to Joash which just means fire. You see, I see a lot of God's people that start out on fire for God. Maybe you did many, many years ago. But in the process, you started out on fire for God, but today you're just fire. And when you study Jehoash's life and Joash, and you see how it goes, and you see some incredible things here. Because... <clears throat> It tells us in verse 18 that he took the hallowed things of the holy things of God's temple and he gave them to Hazar, the king of Syria. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of you and me getting saved and then taking the very things that God gives us and giving them to the world. It's a picture of you taking your body, which is the temple of God, and giving it to an unsaved woman or an unsaved man. That's what it's a picture of. It's a picture of you and me. And I'll tell you the number one thing that got him, and it's the one thing that will get you every time in your life. The Bible says that he was a good king, but he wouldn't take away the high places. And for you and for me, it simply means this. You may get saved and you may be a good person and try your best, but those old friends you keep in your life will drag you down every time. And you may start out on fire for Jehovah, but I guarantee you, pal, I guarantee you, sister, you're going to wind up just fire 
because you keep messing with the things of this world and you keep taking the hallowed things that God has given you and you give them to the world and you take the things and you will not break ties with the drinking crowd, the drug crowd, the fornicating crowd. You will not break those ties. Then you have the last one. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 6, and in particular, Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 23. Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim means Jehovah will establish. But he's such a wicked guy that in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 23, God changes his name from Jehoiakim to Keniah. And Keniah means despised, broken, idol. God said of him in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28, that he is a vessel where there is no pleasure. And I might say, my friend, that your body and my body is the vessel. The vessel is what held the Holy Spirit of God. It was held the oil in the tabernacle. And your body and my body is that vessel. And just like, oh, Keniah, there's many of us today in our lives that God looks at us who we have reneged on the contract. He put down the earnest money. He gave us the very thing that knowing and wanting us to give everything to us, he wanted us to give everything to him. We took that earnest of the spirit. We took that down payment and then just laughed and went out the door and we defrauded God. Today we stand before God and God looks at you and me as as saved people. And he simply says, I see Bob down there. I see so-and-so down there. They're saved, they're my child. But they're a vessel that in them there is no pleasure for me. They have taken the things that I've given them and they've joined themselves to the world. They have reneged on my contract. They took the earnest money of the spirit that I put down in them at Calvary. They accepted my contract. Then they violated my contract. And yet they've got the gall to pretend that we're okay. Listen, my friend. Verse 30 says, A man who shall not prosper in his days. God God cut off his seed. God cut off his seed. And the greatest way you can ensure your kids are going to die and wind up in a lake of fire is for God to cut off your seed because of the fact you as the spiritual father won't get your head out of your rear end and you drink, you smoke, you do all the things the world does. You display that in front of their kids. Some of you single dads and moms, you fornicate in front of your kids and you think that they're not going to see it and they don't know it and then you wonder why they wind up hating God, not going to church and wind up, God help us, dying and going to hell. God have mercy on his people. You have to understand these two benefits in the Bible. The first one is salvation. The day God saved you. He put the earnest of the spirit. He put the down payment on your soul. Thinking that because he gave you everything of him, you give him everything of you. How foolish of God. But that's why we love him. We take what he does for us 
when we go through our tough times in life, and then we just say thank you very much and go right back to our lifestyle. The day you realize the benefit of what God gave you at salvation. He saved you. He bought you with the earnest of the Spirit. He sealed you. He gave you the promise. He established you. He anointed you to do a work for Him, not for your own pleasure. Now we take what God has given us. We take that first benefit and so foolishly, so selfishly go right back to the world. We, we're going to have our big things. We're going to have our money. We're going to have our this. We're going to have our that. We just took the contract that God gave us, grabbed up the money, and just said, I'll see you later. And later we'll be at the judgment seat of Christ. So my dear friend, and I am done now, but I say this to you. Never in the 45 years of my ministry, never in 45 years of my preaching, have I in my mind today laid out what I laid out today as simplistically as it was that everybody in this room knows today where you're at and what you've done. We as God's people are famous for taking the things of God and then taking a big old sharp stick and just jamming it in his eye like he won't see. How dare we? How dare we take that precious contract that was written in the blood, that was sealed by the earnest of the Spirit, that God did put down on you and me and our souls, hoping and knowing that we would understand, we would grasp what He did for us and gave us everything, that we then would give Him everything in our life. Yeah, right. We've stolen the earnest money from God just like a two-bit thief. Alvin Carpus and Pretty Boy Floyd had absolutely nothing on God's people today. John Dillinger, when he robbed the bank, if it was a man standing there with his own money, said, you keep that shot yours. We won't even do that. We'll take everything God gives us. We'll keep asking for more, and then we'll just stick it to him. Excuse my plainness of speech, but sometimes that's just what it needs to be. God sealed us. God gave us the promise. The promises are to establish us. When we get established, God wants to anoint us. But it's all for a purpose, to do the work God saved you for, to do the work that God put the earnest of the Spirit down for, that you and I not only have the first benefit, but we get the second benefit. And the first benefit comes in the day that you come to the point in your life when God changes who you are. You take off the mask. You quit doing it your way. You quit playing the game. You quit being behind that cloak and you become the reality of what God wants you to be and you stop doing it your way and you start doing it His way. Every head bowed, every eye closed.